Hello and welcome back to the No Qualms Here podcast. My name is Kira and today we have the second aunt of mine on the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? So great to be here. My name is Tara Liebert. So currently I'm uh, very fortunate to be a co-founder and executive director of a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. called Free Minds Book Club and Writing Workshop. And we work with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated youth and adults. And we use the tools of books, writing, and community support. And um, we say that the nonprofit helps connect our members, we call them members, to their voices, their purpose, and the wider community. So nice and rehearsed. <laughs> I thought that we could talk about, as my aunt is very, with her nonprofit, social justice minded, um, we could talk about what it's like to be an ally as a white person during this time in particular um, and going forward, uh, how she started her nonprofit and all of that stuff. So that will be our general topic. But so do you want to just give a, tell us how you started Free Minds and the inspiration and the first Free Minds member? Yes. So that's what we always say that my co-founder, Kelly Taylor and I, we didn't really start it. It was Glenn McGinnis um, who wrote to our office. We were news producers in Washington, D.C. working for, I worked for a lot of foreign press where they'd have the bureau in D.C. covering politics and the U.S. and then you would send it back in those days, satellite, now it's all internet, but send it back to the country. And um, so we did a lot of stories on crime because a lot of countries couldn't believe that the world's biggest democracy had such a high incarceration rate, had the death penalty, and what was going on um, for that. So yeah, well, we started, yeah, that was when they were, um, youth were called super predators after the, um, there were some um, sociologists that we know completely wrong and very racist saying that um, these kids would have no remorse. Um, people don't realize um, politicians then, Hillary Clinton said it, Bill Clinton, Joe Biden. I mean, it was really, um, you have to be really vigilant on what we are thinking and believing. And so we... Yes, yes. And fear is a very, very powerful emotion that people, if you you know, put that in your head that all these young kids. So there was a movement to charge um, youth teens in the adult system. So we, I was a radio uh, producer, reporter at the time, and Kelly was a TV and we work for Australian Broadcasting. So his name is Glenn McGinnis. He was on death row in Texas um, when he was 17. Um, Everything you can imagine uh, happened to him. He was... um, he didn't dropped out of school at 11. He was physically abused, emotionally abused, sexually abused. Um, he was gay. He was African-American in a very racist town in West Texas. And um, his mother was addicted because of her trauma, addicted to drugs, and felt the only way to get money was to um, uh, prostitute herself. And her pimp was very abusive, but she said, no more, I'm going off drugs. But if anyone knows anyone going off drugs, the withdrawal process is extremely physically painful. And so Glenn saw his mother go through that agony. I mean, you really should be under medical supervision, but she wasn't. And um, she said, I just need $300. And he knew in his mind she needed to buy drugs to stop the physical and emotional um uh, withdrawal, really horrible. So he said, what do I do? He went to his aunt, legal gun, um, got uh, in her house and then went to rob. The only way he, you know, they had no money. Yeah. To get money was to rob a store in, which was, you know, not the thing to do, but he was in a desperate place. And, um, the store owner, uh, picked up the phone to call. So he said, give me money, had the gun and um which is terrifying for her but she picked up the phone to call the police and he panicked and he the gun went off and she died and she was pregnant so two deaths and she was um kind of like a you know a pillar of the town well the family the she owned the dry cleaning business and um he went through the he confessed right away they found i mean it was like 
And um, he went right to the death uh, row at 17. And his attorney, I'll never forget talking to his attorney, was like, there was no mitigating factors. That's when you're at sentencing and they say, what are some of the factors that cause this? Um, you were saying earlier about upstream, like what is the underlying root cause? And let's view this as a child, right? None. It was like 10 minutes. He was on death row. Boom. And so it takes about 10 years on death row. We try to do some protections with, um, uh, legal counsel. But when it was, he was near, he had a date, he had a, uh, a murder date by the state at that time. And so he's writing anybody, any, you know, and he knew the foreign press were more, at least the Western, uh, Europe, the Western European, they were really like Germany and were really against the death penalty because obviously Germany's history, you know, with World War II, they had an entire movement that is so anti-death um, or criminal punishment or anything like that. And so uh, Kelly did a story, met him, and then they became... Um, like yeah, exactly. But their lives were so different, right? She was a white, middle-class... Um, mom at that time she had little kids and um living in suburbia working as a news producer but he was you know young african-american boy you know been through everything so much trauma but where could they connect their lives through books so that was the whole thing that she would send him a book and they would read the same book and then on the page, we call it on the same page. We're literally on the same page. And you can then talk. It's a point of connection right away. And he never wrote poems, but we started with poems because we feel like that's an um, easy way to start if you're a non-writer. You know, it's very condensed and emotional. Anyway, all, long story short, we just, um, after we tried to stop his execution with zero success and i'll never forget talking to the new york times who were calling anybody we were just like a little foreign press we didn't have a lot any sway in the u.s but i called the new york times reporter and i said um you know juvenile death penalty he's 17 he's on death row with adult men like why are we even if you give him life in prison just don't kill him i mean life in prison is outrageous so to understand what was going through it was not premeditated it was there were so many factors and um, he said, nobody cares. Nobody cares about this is in, he was, time? yeah, he was executed in 2000. So this was like uh, 1999. We were trying to do it, whatever. Yeah, 20 years ago. And they said, nobody cares about it. And then, of course, it was on the cover of the New York Times Magazine about juvenile death penalty. And there was a Supreme Court case, Miller versus Alabama, that said that the juvenile, the youth brain is not developed till 25 in the brain science, so you're not as culpable. Was this the same year that that article came out? or No, that uh, case was 2005. Okay. That's when they, they went all the way to the Supreme Court. And then states started to relook, I mean... Right. It's taken a long time till now. We have like five states left that still, um, it's called juvenile life without parole. So even if they didn't get the death penalty. So in 2005, the Supreme Court said we cannot murder, kill somebody who was a youth, but we can give you life without parole, which is in essence a death sentence in prison. So that was 2005. And then there was another case in 2000, I want to say 10, um, uh, and I have to get the same name. But anyway, that was like you can retroactively look back and ju they call it um, JLWOP, the movement there. Anyway, so we're trying, we're working really hard to get um, youth out of the system and see them as children. So all of that to say, before he died, um, he said, please use books and writing for youth charged adults. He didn't say like start a nonprofit, you know, he was like, this is how I freed my mind. So we just volunteered. Yes, yes. Because on death row, he would read books, educate himself. He was tutoring the older men. I mean, he was just an incredible person. And so uh, we just on our own volunteered like what to do with our pain. You know, and, and that you were saying no qualms here. I think I think it's like when we have pain and trauma, like how do we redirect that? How do we direct that into something that's healing, that, you know, action instead of just being overwhelmed by it all? So we, um, no idea, uh, said, okay, books and writing, let's do a book club, right? We had been members of book clubs. And um, 
we went to the D.C. jail for 16, 17-year-olds. In D.C., you're charged as an adult at 16, 17. Some states, it's like young as nine. Like I say, the policies have been changing. There's been slow progress, which is good. People are understanding the youth brain science. But anyway, um, they loved it. So there we are. <laughs> Who loved it? <laughs> the oh, the jail. At the jail. Right, right, right. And that was 2001, uh, 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I mean, I just remember like growing up with Tara as a big inspiration to me, obviously, but like running nonprofit, the free minds and looking back at like this, the black lives matter movement now. Um, and thinking back to when I was first made aware of like the carceral system, mass incarceration and all the policies and like, uh, I would say stereotypes and false impressions of people and what is correct for society. Um, so before I was uh, like made aware of that and that was all through Tara, I, and you know, you don't understand that as a young age, like, oh, crime is bad. And then I think through the years, probably been, I don't know, I feel like I've been very in, into this for like, like passionate about this particular thing, maybe for five years, mm-hmm. you know, and actually reading books. And I just kept thinking of Just Mercy is a great example of Brian Stevenson um, working on the uh, representation, legal representation aspect mm-hmm. of that story you just told. Um, you realize, I don't know, it just opens your eyes. And I think now we're realizing that it is a systemic problem, not an individual problem. But so my point of saying that is I remember growing up and going to D.C. to do things, people having the impression of the nonprofit, like kind of scared of it you know what I mean or confused why like my aunt worked in prisons they're like you know what I mean and I just remember being like so confused why people were confused you know what I mean I think that's my own very privilege to have someone in my family like this who you know I've met a lot of the free minds guys literally so amazing and you just right and you just they're like so like they're just like us and the fact that people don't even realize that is like so heartbreaking to me and so that I just want to say that is I'm glad that our uh prejudice I'm I'm, there are so many prejudices that still remain but I do think that people are like oh well they're criminals they're super predators they're in prison for a reason well one there are so many times that it's for misdemeanors or like uh falsely accused but also it's like right yeah how many he was five years cliff he he was accused of me yes i love cliff food for thanksgiving he always remembers your i think you had gluten-free something did we what did we bring i forget when we went to the halfway house vegan yeah because he's vegan oh yeah yeah well cliff freaking amazing he was how old was he 15 16 charges an adult for killing a woman yeah it was like central park five people are familiar with that the wrongful conviction of the boys in new york but in dc it's called the uh seventh uh eighth and h and it was a a horrible murder uh of a mom and um she was raped well sodomized and all that so they just needed somebody like your point about the crime and the media has such a powerful right and the fear is something i think about a lot of like I took a mass incarceration class um, my fall semester, which if you're a college student, I highly suggest taking classes on race, criminal justice system, like actually learning about that. I just think it's so important. Right. Um, But so I just remember we'd go over cases with wrongfully accused um, and even like my professor would be like the blood samples didn't match up the evidence didn't match up but they just need someone to place a blame on and so they go towards the quote-unquote super predators towards the the right the black man people and the um uh like 
it's always in the certain neighborhoods where you just assume the crime is where you assume the poverty all that stuff and I think when you realize how it is just fear of the also another book I always think of is In Cold Blood have you read that by Truman Capote right and I just remember it's about two white guys but who actually did murder and whatever and from their like perspective but um I just remembered their how they described the town it was like this really small town and I did like a research paper on the town I think it was in Kentucky or some southern state and they were you know just so and there's so many cases of this where the town is just like a little girl was killed we need to find someone a woman was killed a woman was raped in central park we need to find someone so i think that's very important to like recognize and acknowledge but anyway also like you say the racism behind it right exactly like and and when you say the prejudice and stereotypes like people recognize that this is what our country's founded on so nobody's exempt right myself i mean it's really it we're bombarded by it by the media by everything right and also because of segregation like you say you know all the free minds members they know you you see each other's as um humans but very rarely and especially where i live i live in a suburb outside of philadelphia that's not common you know well i think mostly in the country right because of the redlining and i mean it's been a very specific thing so one thing i always recommend for everybody is to draw that point of the foundation of slavery to today's, um, we call it criminal punishment system or criminal legal system. We don't say criminal justice because it's not there yet, yet, not yet. We think there should be transformative justice, Mm -hmm. I believe that, versus the traditional. Which is why I love Vermont, by the way. Oh, yeah, you guys are big into (laughs) that. It's very nice. No, it gives us hope, right, that there is some change. Well, they do it in, like, classrooms and stuff now. Yeah, but it has to be, like, imbibed in everything we do how we view when someone's caused harm what is our response and my i mean i'm sure you know this ted talk about how the prosecute like how prosecutors can change the prison system you know the ted talk he was a prosecutor probably my top favorite ted talk of all time he was a prosecutor and um this boy he was probably like 16 or something he needed money I don't I'm this may be completely wrong but basically he like robbed a store and they were about to like send him to jail for like 20 years or something like this young black boy and he instead of he as a prosecutor the whole the system I feel like is just taught to punish the top like level of punishment and to not even think of transformative justice restorative justice forgiveness like second chances for a 16 year old in poverty and so he made a critical decision and saying okay this boy is so smart he has so much going for him I believe that he will like can we can give him a second chance and that's not the wrong decision so basically I think it was basically trans or restorative justice in the sense that um, I think he did something with the store and kind of paid them back and um, they came up with different ways for that like quote unquote punishment. And then years later, he the prosecutor was at this like convention or something and he saw this guy um and he made more money than him was so i don't know like was so successful and like basically i just always think about that because it really makes me question the system that we rely on for our quote-unquote safety when it's just it's seems unfounded and well the thing about the unfounded i was gonna say is that one place i totally recommend everyone to go to and you and i need to go once covid is lifted is a legacy museum you know with you were talking about brian stevenson he started that so people can see very clearly the direct line from our country's founding as a slave um state slave country that viewed people as property and the racial hierarchy and then the criminal justice system so it's exactly so you know in a very short thing right so after the war um when slaves were freed um the plantation and business owners still needed 
uh, labor, cheap labor in a capitalist system. And so they would make, they were called black codes or pig laws and make it just incredible. Anything that you can be convicted of, of like walking beside a farm animal or vagrancy or whatever. And then your punishment you were saying earlier is so extreme for what the offense was. And then that's another way. Uh, so they call it convict leasing. And what's so tragic to me about that. So then you'd be leased out to corporations and plantations to do free labor. So it's just another, it was the same system just turned. And then in the South, you say the law enforcement system, the sheriffs were the majority of the, um, in, in that time of the white supremacist groups and the Klan. So it's like, how do you rely on a judicial system that is a killing and oppressing when they are the law? Like that's really, I think people have to understand the root. Even today when people say, why would you defund the police? It's like, we have to dismantle this system that, you know, burn it down and start again. Like we can right. creatively, okay. innovatively. That's why you say it's not just one bad apple. Yes. You know, it's yes. the whole system that we have designed off of these racist ideals yes. that just continually perpetuate. And even I know like so many people have been sharing like stories from previous cops and yes. former cops and they say I didn't understand why I was patrolling certain neighborhoods and looking out for innocent people people like standing I mean yeah you know and you even it's just interesting to hear accounts of former police officers saying that I thought it was wrong at first but then I was just continuously told this is the system this is for the safety and then you yeah. start to believe it yes. and you have this like I don't know what like just ultimate fear of every yes. person in an impoverished segregated neighborhood or a black person right, right. who looks because like you say we're all subject to it it's conditioning and it's really challenging to unlearn things that have been but i find what's really um is you learn the history of it like oh it all makes sense and it took me a long time like you say even before i i was being a part of the problem as a news producer not fully giving the context and the history of why just reporting of like we we call it if it bleeds it leads right the whatever gets the eyeballs probably the same thing with social media you always talk to me about social media like clickbait or whatever it is and that perpetuates it and until we stop and intentionally like you do read all the books and hear different perspectives like question step back and go oh wow I've just assumed that a police makes me safer well actually no studies right. no show that it's not it makes it's after the fact they're being called to things that they are not the experts in doing mental health and um uh, public health and overdose but wait so I've been at the jail 18 years and I'm a white person Kelly's a white person we have on our staff about 18 people now um, pretty mixed, probably majority black employee, you know, staff, but we go to the jail. We have one white free minds member who's incarcerated in a city. There's two Washingtons, right? There's the privileged whites part of the city, the Northwest, and then the Southeast, um, specifically intentionally segregated right and so um and people like you were saying with the police all of the police resources are in those uh black area. neighborhoods and they're not in the other so you just assume there's trouble you're going to look for it and a lot of our members so the reason why free minds we say we elevate the unheard voices right we amplify that's our entire it's the direct lived experience from there. That's what we need to listen to. Not to me. And it gives the context, like you were saying, where we don't just assume yes. like this is a black, big, like tall black man. He's intimidating. He committed this crime. Instead, yeah. you say, wait, wait, wait. Can we like look at the facts and also look at the context, which you find in these poems of you know why did they do it like yeah. the or if they did or not or even if they did right. we say survival crimes what right. can we as a community instead of trying to make laws to lock up what can we do 
to make sure everyone has those resources, access and opportunity, and then crime goes down. Like we know that, right? So, um, and I, what I've really learned the most over all the years is violence as a response to trauma. And I've heard about, you know, we hear about it over and over, but it's really, we're doing in DC schools, they have a trauma-informed care, and um, in our organization, we're going to be accredited as a trauma-informed organization and understanding the impact of act, what, what your actions are if you've been traumatized. And everyone not assuming like, oh, you're aggressive or you're threatening. It's like, what has happened to you? So we always say, um, instead of why, uh, what caused you, you know, why did you do that? We say, what happened to you? And that's where the stories come out, but they need, uh, we need to have people that want to listen. So that's where you come. Right. And also I think when you listen to the stories, you realize that the trauma responses, the response to the trauma through violence, um, is does not did not start with this one individual. It came from a cycle of like a lack of education, a lack of like, um, availability to house care, to house care, to housing, to health care, all of that, like. Which is 400 years ago from right. the direct descendants of slavery of right. a racist system. And I think people, they say, oh no, the civil rights movement, everything is fine. But the structural, like you say, it's not individual, it's structural. Who has the legal control? Who has the institutional power? And if they've done study after study about the disproportionate they call it minority contact, racial profiling. Like we know it, like to your point of that conditioning. So, okay, the answer is what do we do? And what we say in Free Minds is hear, listen to those directly lived experience of it. Right. Believe them. Don't just listen, believe. One thing I'm really thinking a lot about, and you are helping me, and, um, you know, I'm so lucky to have, a family that really wants to talk about all these things is like, how do we, we free minds, we see ourselves as a bridge, right? From those who have been um, snatched away by the system and not given that um, support to a broader community. So educating people. So that's one thing I'm trying to think, how do we do that bridge without re-traumatizing somebody, without saying, oh, okay, you're an other, you're the person that had poverty and horrible things happened to you. And then that becomes another stereotype, you know? And we always say we have to celebrate the uplifting stories. Like we always hear um, you know, trauma and poverty and violence and all the horrific murders that are happening. But we also have to uplift black celebration, black joy, black, and what can we do? And that's what we try to do in the poems is that you're a full complex human being that has, that we all experience those feelings and how do we relate on that level? So that's what we're trying to do. And, um, yeah, so we have this right night challenge. So if anybody's listening, go to our website, freemindsbookclub.org, and read a poem, write feedback. If you could tell people what it is about reading feedback since you've done writing it. How does For the right night? Yeah, like you held your own. Um, oh, yes, I did hold hold, hold my own. Yes. Not enough. I have not done nearly <laughs> enough. But um, my senior project was working with Free Minds. And I held my own right night with some friends. And basically, the Tara gets the poems from the D.C. prisons. Um, and you hand them out and you try to not criticize or correct or anything, but find ways that you can connect, find that similarity um, within the per- with the person that wrote it. Uh, yeah, ta- I, honestly... I think that the poems that I read during Right Nights are so incredible and like people, you know, and I know you've talked about a lot of the Free Minds members do not even have much education, you know, are not used to writing just to write or to read, you know, have barely known how to read. And it's so incredible just to hear the stories of the Free Minds members and also just how they think about it. And actually, this is really random, but I just realized that I screenshotted a poem from, um, oh, June 24th. I just remembered this one I liked because this is not something I can relate to. But um, it's if I it's kind of long. I don't know. But basically, 
this one titled black question mark um it's the i just thought this yeah the language is so beautiful so i'll read some black is the color of dirty clothes color of grimy hands and feet color of tired beaten streets why did you give me thick lips a broad nose and kinky hair why did you make me someone who receives the hatred stare like that is so beautiful um so is the color of a bruised eye when someone gets hurt is the color of darkness is the color of dirt um so it yeah he has these beautiful ways of comparing right and then he switches it he says i made you um the color of coal from which beautiful diamonds are formed the color of oil the black gold that keeps people warm from the rich dark earth um that can grow the food you need your color is the same as the panther who is known for its beauty and speed your color is the same as the black stallion a majestic animal is he i didn't make you in the image of darkness i made you in the likeness of me all the colors of the heavenly rainbow can be found throughout every nation but when all those colors are blended well you become my greatest creation is that i know so (laughs) that's just one example of like the poems um and the power of poetry to do that switch right from that despair and that finding that like i mean i even find when i write you like find your own answers when you like talk it out or write it out you know what i mean i think that's the like amazing power of the book club is reading you realize other perspectives that you might not have known but also when you're writing you like realize your own thinking you know what i mean and that can be truly like healing it's really interesting, like, when you were saying that, like, it uh, sparks, creative things spark other ideas. And that's what we tell people when they read the poems. It's mutual exchange, right? So we've had people do, like, um, art, you know, drawings. They responded to the feelings in the poems through art, or they write a poem back, or they, you know, like, right. that's what I want to have more, I want to, yeah, see. Not that you have to. You can just respond as yourself. But, like, I remember one time we went to a corporate. uh, We do outreach to businesses, too, and we call them poet ambassadors. These are our members in our reentry program. We have a very uh, strong reentry program. And um, it was about his mother that was really, um, was addicted to drugs. Our Free Minds member was reading that. And when she was off drugs, it was like she was this, you know, loving, incredible, fun. Like, but then the drugs would steal her away, her spirit. You know, it wasn't her, right? It was hijacked by the drug. And then uh, the vice president of the company said, "Oh my gosh, this is my experience." She was a white woman, you know, very top corporate manager. I'm sure making a heck of a lot of money. And she said that was my mother was depressed, right? And my mother, when she was depressed, we de- she wasn't my mother, but when she wasn't, she was this life giving, you. You know, and so she, they connected literally through that poem. So it's like this immediate condensed uh, life experience. Because, you know, I'm not really a poet. I never was. Like in the beginning, I mean, I write, you know, news copy. But I we just did because it was kind of short and accessible. And we didn't have time in the book club. But now it spawned this other uh, way of connecting. And people write personal essays and everything. Right. But there's something about, I don't know, what do you think it is about the poetry that gets you right to the heart. Right. And I I really have not been into poetry, like, yeah. until I also took a poetry class. Um, oh. And now I'm very into poetry. Not very into it, but I feel like the, yeah, there's something about, like, the organization of the words and kind of like the hidden meaning yeah it's something like very because I find when I want to write it's very like stream of consciousness right yeah Yeah, and I'm better with like my superfluous vocabulary like you know what I mean like that's not my strong suit but when you have to like condense your thoughts into a poem I feel like that's you know and it's because you're not flat out saying something usually a lot of times it's like the story is constructed through certain images you know and that's interesting you bring that up such a good point because some of the whole concept of the book club is we call bibliotherapy right so you can read about a character in a book that has gone through something really difficult that you might have gone through but you don't have to talk about you because it's so close and raw and scary and you don't want to be vulnerable like that but you can talk about it through the characters so you can process um and do that healing like what you're saying through the writing it's therapeutic um and it's really it really works and what we find with the right night is that so 
you went through that process, you, you know, produce this, then you share it with someone, which is very vulnerable, but you can say, okay, that's not me, that's somebody else, but you can still feel that support and encouragement in that feedback. So on the page, you know, we call it a circle of support. We want as many readers, um, to write, you know, short little one or two sentences, whatever responses. And we've had members, it's unbelievable. We just had someone come home after 44 years last week. And, um, he, you can, some prisons let you take your personal belongings, some not. I mean, it's really horrible what they do. Sometimes they throw them away, lock them up. But he said, I wasn't going to let them, let me walk out that door without my stack of free minds poems that had comments on it because they can read it. That's the beautiful thing about writing, right? You can read it over and over and over. And I know you say connecting the inside to that, or what, what do you say about that? Like how you, it's the connection from the people in the, the right outside the walls. Um, that is so like yeah important to know that like someone is out there that cares to read your poem I think that's like probably what's the like most important part of the poet like right night yeah because we need to be part of something bigger and know that we're valued and cared about and and just having strangers right read your poems i mean one time we did a thing where we were putting our poems in and i think one of the interns put my poem in it was so funny in the right night and then i got the comics back i felt so good like it was crazy like i even know the process and i was like oh yeah and then i was like wow like i was kind of floating on air that they because we want to have an impact on others right that's an essential human need and if you can do it and somebody listened to your words and felt a little there's auntie janet yay um then uh yeah you just feel like yeah you had a positive right right and also i find that like the free minds members from this experience they like gain confidence and also like a sense of like kind of comfort and that they're experiences valid you know what I mean and kind of like going through that process of like this is what I've been through it's made me stronger and like because I know a lot of the members um either did Cliff write a book or he he did he did speeches right he like went right um he's poet and master and I know well I just remember Josh saying uh, right Josh um telling me I'm gonna have a TED talk someday like you know what I mean and he's Josh was like his energy was so addictive because he was like I'm you know I need to motivate people like a lot of them are so motivated self-starters and they really that's something that they pride themselves for and I do think that like knowing that people care about you that you have people that read your words and you know on the outside because I know a lot of times families can't make it to the prisons like whatever however mess of the system is it takes you away from the outside world that that don't you know like our segregated society doesn't know and just like you said assume scary dangerous people whatever and then we're never the worst thing we've ever done right we know that and um um, when you say second chances, we always say we never even got a first chance. Right. So it's like, hello. But I love what you're saying about Josh. That's really uh, hits my heart because um, he so, so tragically, um, his life was cut short because of an over accidental overdose. And so often the members go through that trauma of prison of being so in solitary confinement, which is a common practice. Um, you know, you're isolated and all of that, um, that wounding, it's really, really hard. And so they turn to the, turn to drugs, but his was just accidental. And he had so many hopes and dreams about mental health and healing and telling the world. And so it's so good for me to hear how he had the impact on you. you like know, I his- think about that all the time. Yeah. And I just think about wow. like how, I just think it's so amazing that like people even hearing them like talk about a lot of the poems are about their parents or their children or their girlfriend or significant other and those are just so touching because it's like we all have a family member a friend that like you know we have those feelings for and so you read that and you're like 
this is just another person who wants to see their loved one but yes. cannot and is in here because of that love or whatever yes. it is and i mean um who it's just basic humanized right because right. they become a number in the system you literally are your number right. and so like you say the more people can relate personally then we'll feel connected well, yeah right i also remember who when um i think it was at LaSalle that little thing last year oh, who was with josh he was wearing like an What's eagle's that? hat oh, that's david da- david and, you know he is now a credible messenger that's what we call it where uh formerly incarcerated um young men or men be- mentor youth that feel hopeless and feel like there's the only way i can is is um feel important and belonging is in the street life so he after that he's amazing he can hardly do the potent best because he's so busy with um the kids using his life story so that's where it's like you're credible like because people can tell you i mean sure you hear this in life like blah 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 it's like yeah right you don't know me you don't know my pain but he could say you know i have been where you've been so i'm coming back to tell you and that's a really important thing and he's a really really good at articulating that um but i remember him saying talking about because he has a daughter right talking about just wanting to um like give her something and give her like jewelry i just remember that for some reason of him just being like i just want to i'm so happy that i'm making money because all i want to do is give my daughter something and know that i remember her birthday and i care because when i was in jail all she would get were cards or like there's such limited conversation and communication that when he got out he just was like i want to shower her with love and gifts and i just remember that of just being like so painful to hear you know what i mean but but of course it is and like you say we never hear that we think like oh if you're inside you're cold and your heart is thing and you've turned off any kind of like compassion thing and it's like not true and that's where the poetry and the books able you to keep that emotional um response and connection and the other thing that's interesting about that is um with the dads and the thing is how um vulnerable they are most of our we now have women we just we never because it was youth charged adults mostly boys um because there's a stereotype that you know going back from our slave history is like more threatening more dangerous more you know we had to do that because of when you oppress somebody of course you're always because of what you've done you're always worried about retaliation so you create this whole system of oppression but um and there is all the studies that say if you are a, a defendant in a court and you're black it's like 5.4 or 4.5 i don't know the exact number you're perceived 4.5 years older than if you're white so we already so then you get a harsher crime because you think you're not a little kid and it's why there's disparity in health they think black women don't feel pain they feel like all of these things that we have to break down and constantly um check ourselves on which i think is what you were saying with like as i i feel like when people get defensive about like yeah, but I'm a good white person. Like, I'm not racist. Whatever of recognizing that you inherently, for some reason, you were born into this, if you're white, a white body. Right, with this inherent privilege, or privilege, at least I have inherent white privilege and privilege of where I'm born, my family, all this stuff. And the opportunities of recognizing that I mean, it's just like Ibram Max Kennedy, my favorite man, talks about it's not good enough to be like, I am not racist. You have to be like, I am anti-racist. And it's an active effort because you're like just by existing, like you're already you are benefiting from right from the histories of slave slavery and all the discrimination before like and profiting from that whiteness yeah. and, and it's not so long ago right? right like when we had jim crow laws and segregation like we have so many members that will talk about you know my grandmother couldn't go to a hotel in dc couldn't work in a thing couldn't you know really completely excluded and that's only 19 you know when I was, you know, after I was born, right? Like, and so I think people have to recognize, they say, oh, everything's fine. Rosa Park was on the bus. And it's like, no. And it's in the systems. It's exactly what you say. It's the systems that we have to really look. And we don't even know. We're so blind to it. 
so blind to it. The education, why is it property taxes based on home ownership when there's um, redlining and you can't buy a home, and so then you can't get into a school district that has uh, good access and opportunity. You know, all of those things still you know but yeah i i would love just to hear from you like ways to how can we get that uh awareness and education out there you know right. so i was gonna say we could talk about being an i do have white guilt and like it's yeah, like how right. do i you know when i am an empath and i feel the pain yeah. and like i've multiple times have gotten teary-eyed during this podcast like yeah, how do i channel that and how do I instead of feeling guilty and like oh this was just you know this is just how I am I did nothing to yeah. harm you know black people or anything like that how do I use that yeah. to uplift yeah. my fellow black around people and like who have not benefited from this system yeah. um so I think that it is a journey of like yeah. recognizing that I have this privilege and something that has been kind of comforting to me is a speech of someone saying um, like this, we need white people in the Black Lives Matter movement, like no movement. And I was telling Janet, like in our podcast of I do think that this specific Black Lives Matter movement and era is different from those previous because more people it's so much more like widespread and you like Internet, social right. media and all that yeah, yeah. so everyone it, like can access it and yeah. access the information and protests and everything so and it's the most diverse like protests yeah. ever whatever the yeah. stats are but um and so to be comforted by the fact that like this i don't know that like i do have an impact of like yeah. I do, I think that people a lot of times are like, oh, well, that's for the black people. I don't know right, what they're right, going right, through. Right, and right. I do not know what yeah, they're going yeah. through. I do not have that experience. Yeah, yeah. But I do have the lack of experience, like the privilege of not experiencing that. And the I can use my privilege yeah. to go to my wealthy friends, to go to my wealthy neighborhood, whatever, like whatever my privilege is. And I can spread that message further. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I try to like comfort yeah. myself and say that that's the way in which I can, you know, like spread the message yeah, and change it. Change, yeah. No, well, I think what you do already, just learning, reading, I think that's huge as an ally. And then also, um, there's a great group called Showing Up for Racial Justice, which is just white uh, allies doing all the work and everything. Because I think so often they say to a, a black person, a person, oh, tell me your experience. Like, right. don't put that on someone else. It's already enough pain. Like, why is it their, not even why is it their job to tell you what you know? So do your own homework and your own work and then um and then be with other white allies to be part of the solution right. i think that is and like the whole thing about guilt like guilt if it if it propels us to action but if we just stay guilt that that is a blocked energy and that's not helping this the cause right it's yeah. not creating change. and i think of there was this like meme or like instagram post going around of saying if like black people are young enough to or old enough to experience racism then we are old white kids non-black people are old enough to learn about it yeah. and i think that that's something like it's yeah. a privilege to only have to learn about it rather than experience it there are people at college who like they don't have any gay friends they don't have any black like right. it is different to experience it and i think that i don't have a diverse enough friend group like i do think and obviously don't just diversify your friend group to do it i have to work harder to and even just because I don't have the experience I have to learn about it I have to like immerse myself in that yeah. through books through learning as much as I can through like being involved in things that are not all white you know what I mean I think yeah. that's important to be like I I don't know it's fun to learn about other cultures and to not have right. friends there's this one TikTok and um it was like this video of this like blonde white girl and she was like if your b if your bff does not look like you like you're um not bffs and then like this other like girl who white blonde girl like goes next to her and then someone like replied to that TikTok and it was this white girl and she was like 
you know, whatever, if your BFF doesn't look like you. And then her, like, black friend comes into the screen. She's like, ah, shit, like, (laughs) I guess we're not best friends. Like, that thinking is so disgusting. Like, you know, to know that, I don't know, it's just important to recognize. To be intentional about it. It doesn't just happen. Right, because, yeah, yeah, I'm living this world where things come easier to me. And so I think that I have the right, or not the right, I need to learn about things, be involved in things, and be angry about things for my friends, for, like, the greater community that I am not a part of. You know what I mean? Yeah. I I just, we're just going through a thing. It's called building a pro-black organization. And, like, what are the specific strategies and steps you can take? There really are. It's not, you can just not talk about it, but there is. And the ultimate goal is black liberation and building power, right? So what is building power? The actual power. You know, they always say, oh, have a seat at the table. Well, maybe I don't want that table. And why am I giving you a seat? Why can't I have my own table? You know, there's like all of these things that I think we're at, like your point about the movement at another level of real liberation. Because like you say, until we're, um, you know, we're not fr- Fannie Lou Ham- Hammer until we're, we're not free until we're all free. And that, that if we really believe that, we, we know that. Oh, to be right. Free, I so. think that's what our country needs to learn a bit more of that. Yeah. Like we not be defensive <laughs> right. or like you say, stuck in the guilt. It's like, okay, yeah, guilt, we know. And then, it, you know, we always we have that. the responsibility. Well, we can repair the harm, right? Like we can acknowledge it validate it and then work to repair it and that like you said in the beginning restorative but you're just a wonderful person kira i'm so happy <laughs> i didn't realize that it, that you had been observing and um yeah like that what? you know the free minds all the time you know you just live it for me but i don't see it from through your eyes so it's very nice and they need we need to get that back so next time you can talk to a free minds member you can e- interview them they love oh, yeah. getting the word out right that's the that's a key. Oh, yes. Get me someone and I'll oh, talk yeah. with them. I love it. We got, and you reminded me, we got to get a podcast. Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Tara. And thank you, my no qualmers. Rate and review on iTunes. <laughs> yeah, we forgot to say why we don't no qualm. Well, when I have a good conversation like this. I have oh, yeah. No qualm moment. That's my no qualm moment. Having it really connecting with someone on a really good conversation. I love it. Me too. Okay. Toodaloo, people. Toodaloo.